Hey, it's Dr. Jamie, and let's talk about the importance of salt and electrolytes. If you're living the low-carb life like me, your requirements are actually much higher. And there's only one source that we trust in our home, and it's the people and products at Redmond Real Salt. They keep us coming back for more every time. Real salt's an all-natural, unrefined sea salt harvested from an ancient ocean. It's full of natural minerals that make it healthy, delicious, and pink or red-looking. They're also the best-selling brand in America's health and food stores. Redmond Real Salt is so pure, it's free of pollutants and microplastics found in many other natural refined salts. The Redmond Salt Deposit is in Redmond, Utah, where the team enjoys award-winning work conditions and generous pay. And since they own and control the whole process, you can be sure that Real Salt comes to you through their world-class production facilities in its unrefined, mineral-rich, delicious state, exactly as nature intended. Redmond has amazing natural products, including salt, electrolytes, toothpaste, and so much more. So check out the entire line at www.redmond.life, where you can use my code DRFIT, that's D-R-F-I-T, for a discount on all Redmond Real Salt and Relight products. to the Fit and Fabulous Podcast with Dr. Jamie Seaman. Hello, everybody. It's Dr. Jamie, and welcome back to the Fit and Fabulous Podcast. It is so great to have you here. I have an incredible guest on today's podcast. I'm super excited to talk about this topic because it's one that I talk about all the time. It has to do with nutrition and what we eat and chronic disease and how you might be able to make you and your family a little healthier with just some simple switches. So I want to introduce you all to Jeff Knobs. Jeff is the co-founder and CEO of Zero Acre Farms, a food company replacing destructive vegetable oils with healthier, more sustainable oils and fats made by fermentation. With over 15 years of experience in the health and nutrition space, Jeff has co-founded several startups to offer better quality ingredients and nutrition-forward food to people and communities, including the fast casual restaurant chain, Catawba. In 2020, after seeing a drastic decrease in accessibility to fresh food, Jeff co-founded Help Kitchen to connect food insecure people with partner restaurants for a free meal via text message. Jeff writes about health, nutrition, and sustainability at jeffknobs.com. You can find him on Instagram at jeffknobs. Jeff, welcome to the Fit and Fabulous podcast. Thanks, Jamie. Awesome to be here. So tell us a little bit about your story. You obviously have worked kind of in the you know food startup industry and things like that. Tell us a little bit about your background and how you ever really became passionate about what you're doing at Zero Acre Farms. Yeah, uh, it, it was a long journey to get to oil of all things, um, but I, I've always been very passionate about food. And you know, even even in middle school, um, I was bringing foods to school that my friends would make fun of me for, but I just thought they were really healthy and what we should be eating. And you know, I never really drank soda after I realized that it was bad for you. So for whatever reason, the way my brain is wired, uh, I, I've been interested in nutrition. And as, as I got more interested in nutrition, I got more and more interested in you know what should we really eat and everyone had a different opinion, as you know, uh, what one, one group of people would say is the worst thing you could put in your body. Another group of people would say is the healthiest thing you could put in your body. And so that always really bugged me. And it became clear to me that nutrition was a lead domino and, you know, a lot of our health issues. And that's an area that's near and dear to, to my heart. I've lost family members to chronic diseases. And, 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 and I think that, you know, if, if they would have maybe known what I know now about how we eat and the effect food can have on our body, 
maybe it wouldn't have happened. So I, I've been pretty obsessed with the idea of what makes people sick and how can we prevent that from happening. Um, and basically, you know, did a bunch of my own research, read textbooks, talked to experts. And uh, what that led me to was not what restaurants were serving, certainly, and what, you know, not what was in packaged foods. But I love restaurants. I love eating out. I love delicious food. So decided to start my own. And that was, uh, that was in my mid to late 20s, started a restaurant called Catava, which you mentioned. And we serve food for people that care about what they're putting in their body, whether that, whether they're keto, paleo, vegan, vegetarian, pescatarian, keto, you know, what have you people that aren't just satisfied with the standard American diet. And the, the number one ingredient that we had a heck of a time sourcing was cooking oil. And I had already known through a lot of my own research that vegetable oils should be avoided. They're horrible for us. Uh, as we were building out Catawba, we were also very focused on the environmental impact of our ingredients and the foods we use. And so it was sort of this combination of uh, healthy, sustainable cooking oils are really hard to source. And these oils are really bad for us. and They're really bad for the planet. And replacing them, if anything, makes your food taste better, not worse, like, you know, giving up sugar or gluten or flour or whatever. Um, so that all led to the idea that we need to come up with an alternative, which ultimately led to founding Zero Acre Farms and, and putting cultured oil out on the market. Yeah. So anybody out there like me grew up in the 80s and, uh, you know, early 90s, it was this era of convenience. I mean, everything in a box, hamburger helper, just, you know, add the meat, shoot. Sometimes I think we ate it without the meat. <laughs> um, you know, just this, this world of like microwave meals. And so, and so I think people listening are going to say, yeah, you know, obviously convenience foods and highly processed foods are unhealthy, but I think it's interesting these days, these particular oils that you're mentioning are found literally in everything. I mean, we're talking salad dressings, you know, uh, you might even pick up the avocado oil mayo, you know, and we're going to dive into why, you know, people are kind of fooled by some of these things, but can you tell people a little bit about the history really of vegetable oils, like in the food industry? Yeah, absolutely. Like, why are we, why, like, why are we using massive amounts of them? Massive amounts. Yeah. And, and Nina Teichels, who, who, who you may know, um, has a great graphic on this from the 1990s showing you know, a, a official American Heart Association recommendations to eat sugar, jam, candy, snack well cookies. Um, you know, anything that didn't have fat in it was good. Uh, and if you did eat fat, you know, it better be coming from corn oil and soybean oil and canola oil, uh, which is weird because we never ate those things as humans. So to, to back up and describe how we got to a point where the official recommendations were we should be guzzling corn oil. Um, you know, we, we never really ate oils from seeds or from grains. Uh, the, the first was cottonseed oil, which was used to replace whale blubber um, because we, we hunted whales for, you know, to, to, for industrial applications um, for lighting. And it was never, it was never uh, able to be consumed by humans because it was acutely toxic oil from cottonseeds. But we figured out a way to detoxify them uh, in an acute manner and then partially hydrogenate these oils to create uh, fats that could replace lard and, and other animal fats. And it was called a Crisco. Um, and Crisco blew up. It was a huge success. It was marketed as uh, more pure than animal fats. Um, and, you know, soon it was in every, nearly every household across the country. Um, Cottonseed oil was then replaced by soybean oil and, and corn oil as those crops were grown for factory farm animal agriculture. You know, the, there was this oil byproduct 
Um, and then more and more crops were grown where oil wasn't the byproduct, but was actually the main ingredient. So, you know, sunflower oil, canola oil, palm oil, um, avocado oil, olive oil, et cetera, et cetera, in different parts of the world. And uh, around that same time, President Eisenhower had a heart attack. Uh, rates of heart attack were climbing. Everyone was was focused on President Eisenhower's heart attack and you know how he was going to combat it and get past it and ultimately survive. And that was really what put heart disease into, into the country's uh, spotlight. And one of the big recommendations for preventing heart disease was to was to eat more vegetable oils of all things. And this was not based on any randomized controlled trial or, or good science. It was more of a hunch and uh, a, a really, influ really influential folks like Ansel Keys, who maybe your audience has heard of before, who really pushed their agendas based on some correlation data, um, pretty shoddy correlation data. Uh, but, but they're, you know, not to sound too much like a conspiracy theorist, but, um, you know, there's a lot of money involved, uh, Procter and Gamble who own Crisco donated money to the American heart association, which really put them on the map from being a small, smaller organization. No one had heard of to one of the largest organizations, uh, nonprofit organizations in the world. They began recommending, and it was on the cover of time magazine. You know, if you want to do what was good for your heart, eat vegetable oils. And the thinking was vegetable oils are liquid. And so they must also be liquid in your veins and not clog your artery, clog your arteries. You know, our, our brains like to think of the very simple connection like that. Oh, saturated fat, solid. It must clog my arteries, like putting fat down a cold pipe, uh, you know, corn oil, liquid. It must be great for my arteries. Obviously it's more complicated than that. Um, and, and vegetable oils are the one food that have increased in line with increasing rates of chronic disease. So even though we started consuming more and more and more vegetable oils, now 20% of our calories, which is crazy and depressing. Uh, you know, our, our rates of chronic disease have continued to go up. So more and more people are now starting to understand that these oils are bad. And especially over the last decade, there has been a lot of really good science that's come out to, to show how bad they are, you know, including multiple randomized controlled trials, which, which we can talk about. Um, but, but that hasn't stopped, you know, that hasn't stopped them from being so prevalent. They're the most consumed food in the world after rice and wheat. And yeah, they're in everything. Like you said, you know, salad dressings, um, plant-based meats and milks, restaurant meals, uh, basically every packaged food, uh, even actual meats, you know, they're in like jerkies and they're, they're in so many things that they're, they're unavoidable. And part of the reason is because there just hasn't been a good alternative, you know, food manufacturers are now used to liquid oils that have certain properties that they can use conveniently and easily. And, and that basically leads them to canola, corn, safflower, sunflower, grapeseed, rice bran, cottonseed, peanut oil, you know, all, all the rest that we consume so much of today. Yeah. So I have a degree in nutrition before I went to medical school, which is different than a lot of my um, colleagues. And I distinctly remember, you know, sitting in these nutrition classes and hearing this data about how saturated fat drives cardiovascular disease and heart disease. Um, so much to the point that when I went home from one lecture, I went to go grocery shopping and I'm in the orange juice aisle and they have this heart healthy orange juice. And it has the addition of essentially of plant sterols and stanols. And this is like when basically they were, you know, replacing these plant fats in everything, you know, margarine instead of butter. I mean, they were putting it in the orange juice. They were putting it in absolutely anything and everything that they, you know, could get their hands on. And you're right. If, if you really start being a sleuth and turning over these products and looking at the ingredient labels, everything, I mean, it's like, um, and different names. So, um, what, what really is the evidence that 
that they're bad for us, that they're inflammatory. I mean, why, why are they, why are they so horrible for us? There's so many ways to look at this. Um, so uh, we, we, we talked about heart disease a little bit. I can start there. Heart disease is not the result of a solid fat physically clogging your arteries. Um, you know, if, if you put lard or, um, or beef tallow or, you know, butter at the temperature of the body. dissolved into the coronary artery instantaneously. It's a a bit more complicated than that, turns out. Um, And it it looks like heart disease in particular is primarily caused by the oxidation of LDL cholesterol. So, you know, and and this is where it gets complicated and this is why it's confusing um, because is LDL involved? Yes. Is cholesterol involved? Yes. But is eating cholesterol and eating saturated fat, the primary cause of heart disease certainly doesn't appear to be the case. And, you know, when a lot of this science that we're still relying on from the middle of the last century and middle to late last century, um, all polyunsaturated fats were the same. There was no distinction between omega-6 and omega-3. Um, you know, all, uh, cholesterol was the same. There's, there was no distinction between HDL and LDL. And this has come out over time, you know, over decades, oh, there, there's HDL and LDL. There's, um, small, dense LDL particles and large buoyant LDL particles. There's LDL and there's oxidized LDL. And what, what appears to actually cause heart disease is when LDL oxidizes and oxidized LDL is essentially defined as, um, linoleic acid that oxidizes LDL. Linoleic acid is the primary fat in vegetable oils. It's found in all foods. Um, but in most foods it's found one to maybe 3% of, of the food of the calories in that food in vegetable oils. It's depending on the oil as high as 50 to 75% of the fats of the fatty acid composition is this omega six linoleic acid. It has multiple double bonds. It easily oxidizes, which means it breaks down. It goes rancid, um, becomes a, a free radical. And when it oxidizes, it causes, uh, other, other molecules in our body, other, uh, compounds to oxidize, including LDL. And so when that LDL cholesterol is, is going through our arteries, if it's oxidized by linoleic acid from primarily vegetable oils, um, it's, it creates damage in our arteries and then our bodies try to repair that damage. And they do that via foam cells that ultimately clog our arteries. And so, you know, that's just one disease, uh, and, and obviously a major one because it's the leading cause of death in the world. Um, uh, but, but, but it all comes down to the linoleic acid content, these vegetable oils. So they, they oxidize easily. They cause inflammation. They also seem to be at the root of other diseases. Um, and, and so when we're eating a lot of them, they, they oxidize not only in the frying pan or the deep fryer, you know, or, or the refining before they even go into our bodies, but then that same thing is happening in, in our bodies. And there, there are many things here where. It's not like it's at all controversial. For example, there's a a toxin, a type of aldehyde called 4-hydroxynonanol or Uh, 4-HNE. This is a a well-recognized acute toxin that's one of the most toxic aldehydes out there. You know, aldehydes like formaldehyde, maybe people have heard of that preserve dead bodies and are in cigarettes. Um, And 4-HNE only comes from one source, which is the breakdown of omega-6 fats. And there, there's all sorts of scientific literature showing how uh, this acute toxin is so problematic and causes so much damage. Um, but, but then there's not as much talk about, well, where does this toxin come from? And it only comes from one source, and that's, that's these omega-6 fats. And the, uh, uh, the primary source of omega-6 fats in our diet is 
vegetable oil. So I think a lot of this comes back to, we reduce the cons our consumption of vegetable oil, specifically these omega-6 fats like linoleic acid and all sorts of downstream effects, um, benefit from, you know, even quality of our skin aging, it, it all comes down to oxidative stress, reducing these toxins, reducing this uh, oxidative load on our body. And, and, you know, omega-3s are kind of the, the good, the good fat omega-6s are like the, the evil cousin. And the more omega-6 we eat, the less bioavailable the omega-3 we eat is. Um, so, you know, we all want to get more omega-3. Most people aren't eating sardines and salmon at every meal, but ac actually one of the best ways to get more omega-3 is to reduce our consumption of omega-6 so that the omega-3s we do eat are more available for our body to actually use. Right. I think anytime we talk about, you know, uh, you're eating something bad in the diet. Well, you're not only doing that, but you're replacing something else. You know, you're, you're eating something in place of something that could, could have been better. So let's talk about something like red meat that's been completely vilified, <laughs> you know, for its saturated fat content. And there's a small amount of linoleic acid, right. in red meat. Um, but like you're saying, it's a very small percentage. And I think what people don't understand is that you know, uh, hundreds of years ago before the use of these, you know, industrial synthesized oils, essentially, you couldn't naturally find this amount of linoleic acid in whole food sources. It was, you know, the creation of an oil that's completely concentrated and it's not, you know, um, I, I can hear somebody sitting there thinking like, oh, these things are like so bad, but like they, but there's omega sixes in walnuts. Like you're saying walnuts are bad, but I think it's just, people need to understand it's the percentage. It's the ratio. It's how much of omega six to omega three that you're eating, because, you know, traditionally our diets were closer to like one to one or even four to one would be great. These days it's like 10 to one, 20 to one, 30 to one and higher in some people's diets. So it's not that, um, you know, the amount itself, it's that you're replacing eating something else that could have done something better for your body. I hope I explained that in a way I'm yeah. always trying to like break it down for people, like to the level that my 10 year old could understand it. That's a good um, way to do it. Okay. So you talked about how they oxidize, they, so they cause inflammation, which is kind of the buzzword now with so many different disease processes. Um, what other downstream ramifications, like, is there changes in satiety? Is there, you know, epigenetic changes? Like, what do we really know? Uh, it, it's, it's the early days and having consensus on this. Um, but it, it does seem to be at the root of, of many issues. And, you know, you, you mentioned the omega six to omega three ratio, uh, and, and displacing other foods. And this, this is a problem in nutrition with nutrition studies in general, it's so hard to isolate the effect of one particular nutrient because by definition, mm -hmm. if you eat more of one thing, you're eating less of another thing. And so, you know, right. it is the outcome of that study because you ate more of thing a or ate less of Butter thing B. Bread. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and which is also interesting because there is total consensus on like, Hey, fried foods are bad for you. Um, but those same people that say fried foods are bad for you would say, you know, uh, a potato is fine. And you know, a little salt is fine. And most fried foods are literally just a vegetable, a vegetable, actual vegetable with a little bit of salt cooked in vegetable oil. It's not the potato and it's not the little bit of salt. It's the, you know, it's, it's the massive amount of oxidized vegetable oil that you're getting. Um, and yeah, when, it, and, and then on the omega six, omega three front, um, I, I think it's a combination of 
the ratio and the actual amount. So for example, if you're eating, you know, an entire salmon, uh, uh, salmon filet at every meal and getting massive amounts of omega-3, um, you know, you, you would, you would, uh, you wouldn't need to do that if you, if you were getting low amounts of omega-6. Um, but, but let's say you went for the very high, you know, of both strategy, you were, you were eating a uh, deep fried food at every meal. So you also had tons of sardines. Um, that means you're going to get more bioavailable omega-3 by just eating so much fish, but you're not completely offsetting the, the downstream effects of omega-6. So the, you know, the omega-6 is still going to oxidize in your body. Uh, it, it competes with omega-3s in enzymatic pathways. So if you're eating a ton of omega-3, you know, there will just be, it will be able to outcompete the omega-6, but it's not going to prevent that omit those omega-6 fats from oxidizing, from creating oxidized LDL, um, from, from it's like a grenade exploding into shrapnel, um, you know, from, from all the shrapnel from this oxidation, causing damage and wreaking havoc, creating things like 4-HNE, these acute toxins. Um, and, and so we have studies that are in humans and randomized controlled trials down to studies that are in, in mice, um, and, and everything in between. And 4-HNE is just one toxin that, you know, there, there are many more, but, um, yeah, a, a few of what the studies have found are that when one group of people is eating, you know, more traditional fats and another group of people is replacing those fats with vegetable oils, the health outcomes are, are much worse than the group eating vegetable oils. So in a study called the Sydney diet heart study, there's about a 62% higher risk all cause mortality or basically chance of dying from anything in the group that ate more vegetable oils, um, higher chance of heart disease was found in the Minnesota coronary experiment. You know, th there are a number of others. And what's really interesting is it, it may, it may affect our satiety or how hungry or full we are. Um, still, still early days of exactly figuring this out. There's been science on it for a while, but I, I think, you know, the dots still need to be connected a bit more. Um, when you look at when different animals eat linoleic acid, it tends to be in the fall when they're eating diets that are higher in nuts and seeds, as opposed to, um, you know, leaves and stems, nuts and seeds are obviously a whole food. Um, they tend to be a, a, a food that's high in omega-6 fats. So, we, you know, we probably shouldn't be having like a, a pound of walnuts at every meal. Um, but it, it's also a whole food. It's like eating you know, fruit versus, um, high fructose corn syrup. There's a little bit of a difference there, right. but, um, it may help fatten them up for winter essentially, and, and help them get through the winter when they hibernate, um, you know, put on weight. And in these hibernating animals, putting on a lot of weight in those few months leading up to winter is essential. And from a mechanistic standpoint, it, it lines up and eating vegetable oils may do the same thing as smoking marijuana when it comes to, uh, when it comes to kind of giving us the munchies and triggering those molecules in our body that, um, that ultimately tell us, Hey, you should eat more. Hey, you should eat more. Hey, you should eat more. And th th there have been a number of studies on this showing that, um, you eat more omega-6 fats. And, and this has also been demonstrated even in mice, um, mice that eat more omega-6 fats. They have more of these molecules that lead to hun hunger signals. They end up eating more calories and they put on more weight, uh, all else equal, except, you know, one group is eating more omega-6 fats. Those exact studies haven't been in, done in okay. humans, but the correlation is there. It's like a bag of Lay's potato chips, like the commercial where they're like, I bet you can't eat just one. And it totally is that way. It like when, I mean, I've eaten these foods obviously, and it does, it seems like you can't stop. Like, even if I was full, I feel like I could continue to have a desire to eat them, but I picture myself sitting down to 
a salad or some eggs or beef. And I don't think I've ever, you know, if you feel like you hit that natural satiety, like I, I totally can picture that. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, um, what we get the cravings for when we eat a lot of vegetable oils are those foods that have a lot of vegetable oils in them. We want the, the salty, crispy, oily foods. And so it just becomes this vicious cycle where, you know, you eat the bag of chips and you get that big dose of linoleic acid from, from vegetable oils that are, that the chips are cooked in. And then you start to get those acute cravings, um, for, for more of that. And then you eat more of that. And it just leads to this cycle where, you know, ultimately people put on weight. Um, so yeah, it's unfortunate, but it's why I think it's such a lead domino where, you you know, you cut the vegetable oils, you cut all the excess linoleic acid, these omega six fats, um, and, uh, the, all the cravings and the battle with hunger may become a little bit easier. Yeah. I mean, you just think about these, you know, cheap convenience foods, first of all, they're cheap. So that makes them accessible to everybody, um, at any level of income and they make them very hyper palatable. So like this perfect combination of, you know, vegetable oils, little sugar, little flour, whatever else we have in there. And it's just like a complete atomic bomb inside of our system. I have a couple of patients that work at work as food scientists. I've talked about this on another podcast before, but one of the, one of the people's jobs, I won't name the company she works for. It's here in Omaha, but her literal job is to design the peanut butter flavoring in the peanut butter cookies. And it's a like, she's a chemist basically. I mean, it's a chemical combination of, you know, chemicals that who knows, it probably just says natural flavoring or whatever on the back of the package, but it's the other ingredients too, that she's looking at, you know, how much canola oil or soybean oil is in the product, how much sugar is in here and what makes it taste the best so that people want to keep eating it. Yeah, it, it definitely makes sense from a, you know, food manufacturing standpoint, certainly profitable. Um, when, if, if the bag of potato chips can do the same thing as, as THC from marijuana, I mean, THC is, is actually an FDA approved prescription drug to stimulate appetite. It, it really works. And when you, you know, when you smoke or ingest THC, uh, a THC is called a cannabinoid. Um, you stimulate certain receptors called CB1 receptors. And when you activate those CB1 receptors, you uh, stimulate appetite. And so THC is a cannabinoid. They're also endocannabinoids. Endocannabinoids are those that are inside our body. We're not consuming them externally. And those endocannabinoids like 2-AG and AEA, those also activate CB1 and they cause, they cause hunger. Um, and the more linoleic acid we eat, the more we stimulate those, uh, those receptors and the higher our, uh, our internal production of 2-AG and AEA, which, which increase our hunger. Um, so yeah, it's, it's been demonstrated, you know, very clearly, um, and, and some populations are affected more than others. So like with LDL and cholesterol and, and heart disease, um, and oxidation, these things are all connected and like all the words are there. Uh, and, and it's the same with, um, with obesity where, you know, do do genetics play a role? Yes. Do genetics cause you to gain weight? No. Um, can genetics make you much more likely to have, you know, a hard time, uh, shedding weight or an easier time gaining weight? Definitely. Um, but you know, if, if you're, if you're eating the right foods, um, you know, 
that that plays a much bigger role than than genetics alone. Okay. All right. So I think we've convinced people how bad they are for our health. Let's talk about the massive environmental impact of the production of, of these oils. Yeah, this is a bit depressing. Um, so, so we eat a lot of different foods um, and a lot of those foods come from crops. And so when we look at what food, what food crops have the biggest impact on the environment, vegetable oil crops basically top the list in every category. Um, they're the most greenhouse gas emitting crops, like five to 25 times more greenhouse gas emissions uh, from vegetable oil crops than from any other crop. Uh, they take up a massive amount of land, about 30% of croplands globally of all croplands are just vegetable oil crops. And so as a result, we have to tear down natural ecosystems to grow them. Uh, two of the top three drivers of global deforestation are vegetable oil crops. So, um, you know, they've got to go. And it's not like we're, we're growing these crops um, as a food that's really good for us, where we're like, okay, you know, it's, it's worth it. We got to destroy some ecosystem, but this is going to help us thrive. These are foods that are bad for us. Um, you know, they, they contribute to biodiversity loss, which is how many insects and plants and animals and orangutans and tigers are, you know, out there in the wild. Um, if we're destroying their habitats by growing vegetable oil crops and certainly other crops too, but especially vegetable oils, um, huge negative impact on biodiversity, on, on greenhouse gas emissions, on how much land we're using, how much water we're using. Um, and, and, and it's partly because of how they're grown and partly because of where they're grown. And it sort of depends on the crop. For example, maybe, maybe people have heard of palm oil and it's disastrous impact on the environment. Um, that's because palm oil only grows near the equator. And that also happens to be where our rainforests grow and where there's a lot of biodiversity. So to grow palm, we have no choice, but to, um, you know, grow in areas that used to be rainforests and, and, and tear them down. Um, and then there are other crops like canola, sunflower, soybean that tend to grow in colder regions, um, and, and not in, you know, not in the rainforest, the soy now does grow in much of the Amazon as well. Um, but something like a sunflower canola, you know, grown in Ukraine and Russia and Canada. Um, so it's, you know, it's not competing for land with rainforest, but it's competing for land with massive grasslands and woodlands and, and other natural environments. Uh, and the, the big issue with those is they're just not very efficient at making oil. You know, we, 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 um, wait six months for something like a, a soybean to grow or, or canola plant, which rapeseed. Um, and then you know, we have these tiny wait, little is there, seeds. Is there a canola? Is there a canola plant? <laughs> uh, the industry would love for you to believe there's just a natural canola plant, but uh, canola is just the, canola the fields in Nebraska. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, they, they look kind of pretty. I mean, they're like yellow flowers, um, like just fields and fields of yellow flowers, these rapeseed plants. And they have these little tiny seeds and we press them for a tiny amount of oil, you know, um, and, and then the humans eat the oil, the, uh, factory farm animals eat the leftover meal. You know, the cows shouldn't be eating rapeseed meal. Humans shouldn't be eating rapeseed oil. Um, and, and yeah, so it's just not a very efficient process. You end up using a ton of land just to produce a little bit of oil. Okay. So tell us what the solution is. I had been thinking about this same question for a very long time. Uh, How do we fix this problem? Yeah, I was banging my head against the wall. If we take it out, we have to replace it. Like it's back to where we were right 50 years ago. If we take these oils out, then what what are people going to replace them, you know, in their diet? 
Yeah. And, and one solution is certainly to just not have oils in our diet. Um, you know, it's not like there are any essential nutrients that are in oil that we can't get from other foods. Um, we could get all our fats from steaks and avocados and coconuts. Um, but realistically that's, you know, that's probably not going to be where things go. And, and people love their, um, their crispy snacks and deep fried food and salad dressings. And it's a lot easier to, um, to fry some eggs and a little bit of oil as opposed to, you know, poaching eggs at every meal. And so, yeah, I thought a lot about this. Our, our team thought a lot about this and we looked at scaling up uh, regenerative agriculture solutions, scaling up something like an olive oil, which ends up having a bunch of its own issues on the environmental side. Um, and none of those things would even be a drop in the bucket when looking at how do we actually replace these, you know, these vegetable oils at scale. So uh, where we ultimately landed was using a method of, uh, um, fermentation, leveraging this method of fermentation to produce oil. And we call it cultured oil. Um, we, we just launched it. So it's on, it's on still now on our, um, start starting on our website. Uh, we have bigger aspirations on how we eventually get it into, you know, McDonald's and, and bags of potato chips from Frito-Lay. Um, but yeah, when, when oil is produced via fermentation, there are all sorts of benefits, uh, first and foremost for, you know, for health benefits, um, cultured oil has this incredible fatty acid composition that you just wouldn't find with, with any other oil is very important to us that it was a liquid oil to actually replace these really harmful seed oils as a one for one replacement. Um, and, and so cultured oil is really high in monounsaturated fat, which is about as stable as saturated fat, um, while, while still being liquid and, uh, and then has, you know, we talked about omega-6 linoleic acid culture oil has about as much omega-6 as something like a, a beef tallow or, a, um, or, uh, you know, other ruminant fats or a butter. Um, but again, while staying liquid. So, you know, the, the whole intention was, okay, we've been traditionally eating these, uh, these fats like tallow and, and, and butter. Um, how, how can we produce those in a way that, that can directly replace seed oils, you know, get, the, get the benefits of those without, um, w- without the downsides and, uh, and, and then cultural oil has about a 90% lower environmental footprint than, uh, than vegetable oil. And even compared to something like olive oil, which is a very thirsty crop, um, cultured oil uses a, a few hundred times less, less water, significantly less land. Um, so, you know, cultured oil is not our, um, uh, I mean, I mean, it's, it's our product we're bringing to market, but it's, it's not a trademark we own. We're actually trying to create this new category of cultured oil. We think this is just how we should have liquid edible cooking oils going forward. Um, so yeah, cultured oil is this new category you want to create zero acres, our brand that, you know, we're, we're kind of the first to, to introduce this term cultured oil and bring this product to market. Um, but hopefully others will join us. Okay. So it's basically, it's high in monounsaturated fats. So more than olive oil, you pointed that out. Um, why, So when we started eliminating these from our diet, we replaced it mostly with coconut oil, olive oil, avocado oil. Um, Are all of those, like if I go to the store and pick up avocado oil or olive oil, are all these good? Like what is, um, why is cultured oil better than those alternatives? If you happen to actually get avocado oil or olive oil, um, it's certainly better than the seed oil alternatives like, you know, sunflower and soybean and corn oil. Um, unfortunately, there's been a history of adulteration in both those industries. Uh, you know, olive oil adulteration, um, we've known about for a while. There's actually a whole book written on the subject. 
and the, the person who wrote that book estimated that about 75 to 80% of extra virgin olive oils in the U S um, were adulterated. And then a recent study out of uh, university of California, Davis found that 82% of avocado oils were uh, adulterated or rancid. And some samples were actually just pure soybean oil. Um, wow. You know, that, that's super unfortunate people trying to do the right thing for their health and, and they're actually maybe even doing something worse. Um, but you know, e- even if you do get, I mean, that's the case where you get what you pay for and like getting, you know, the, the affordable, cheap olive oils, you just, it, it's a bit more of a, a risk, but, um, e- even if you're definitely, you know, actually knowingly getting olive oil and avocado oil, they're certainly not the perfect cooking oil that they're, they're, you know, definitely the, the least bad. They still contain too much omega-6 linoleic acid, in my opinion. Um, you know, it's a pretty wide range between like 10 to 21%. Some olive oils even be found to have 27% um, linoleic acid, which is, I mean, that's more than canola oil. Uh, and, and then they have this disproportionately negative environmental impact. So uh, olive oil in particular is sort of like the, um, the, the almond of the oil crop world, extremely thirsty, uses extremely water intensive, requires a lot of irrigation. Um, and then avocado oil is kind of like the palm oil of North America. It's, uh, you know, it, it's disastrous for the regions in which it's grown, particularly in, in Mexico. Um, and, you know, all, olive oil, I mean, I use olive oil. Um, I actually do a cultured oil, olive oil blend to get some of the uh, flavor of extra virgin olive oil, but then the stability of cultured oil. So, so we put this to the test. Um, we, we did a test, a third, third party did this experiment for us. Uh, ran cultured oil, olive oil, avocado oil, as well as a few others like um, soybean oil, sunflower oil, canola oil, and heated them continuously in a in a frying pan for um, for a few minutes up to ninety minutes. And um, what what was measured was the amount of toxic aldehyde production. So you know we had talked about four um, hydroxynonanol, which is called four HNE, one of the most acutely toxic compounds generated from, from vegetable oils. And so we, we measured that along with other, uh, polyunsaturated fat derived aldehydes. And after about 10 minutes of cooking, which, you know, you'd like sear, sear some eggs or cook a stir fry or whatever, um, cultured oil was the only oil that showed no measurable aldehyde activity from these PUFA derived aldehydes, you know, avocado and olive oil had plenty. And after 90 minutes, um, which would be, you know, like deep frying or something like that, uh, cultured oil had six six times less than avocado oil, 11 times less than olive oil, and like 20 times plus less than, than these other seed oils. Um, which, which is why, you know, olive oil, avocado oil, definitely better than these seed oils for, for cooking and for consuming. Um, but, but cultured oil, you know, you just, it, it's much more stable, much less, uh, omega six fat. Uh, it, th- there are also some culinary benefits, like it stays liquid in the fridge. So if you're making a dressing, it doesn't kind of clump up like avocado oil and olive oil do. And then it, it has a really high smoke point, even higher than avocado oil, certainly higher than olive oil. Um, so it's, it's kind of, you know, you have that maybe a little extra virgin olive oil for taste. Um, you know, if, if you do, uh, butter, some butter, and I think you're, you're kind of covered in the cooking oils department and the cultural oil can be used to make dressings with olive oil or just used on its own. Um, you know, you can cook the heck out of it if you're making a stir fry or, or, or searing a steak at a high temperature. Um, uh, but you know, certainly we're not in this chronic disease and deforestation mess because of an overconsumption of extra virgin olive oil. But at the same time, I don't, I don't think those oils are going to get us out of this mess. Okay. So it sure sounds like the unicorn of, of oils. I have a bottle here for anybody on YouTube. You can see this uh, zero acre cultured oil. 
one, the very first question that came to my mind was, you know, we see plant-based burgers and all these things. And then people say, well, they're just highly processed alternatives. What exactly, like what is cultured oil? Like, how do you, what are the starting ingredients in this fermentation process? Like, where does it come from? And I live, I legitimately don't know the answer you guys. I'm just, I'm seriously asking. Yeah. Uh, so I should start by saying there's nothing new in cultured oil. It's not like some new novel fatty acid or compound. It's the same healthy fats that are found in all other foods, just more of the good, less of the bad. So, you know, we talked about kind of the concept, we didn't put these words to it, but the concept of the dose makes the poison being the case with omega-6 fats like linoleic acid found naturally in everything one, 2% maybe, but when it's 75%, that's a big problem. Um, so, you know, in the case of cultured oil, um, less than 3% of, of those omega-6 fats, primarily monounsaturated fats, uh, like those found in avocados, olives, macadamia nuts, but, um, with a little bit more, uh, so it's, it's not new. It, it's just, uh, a, a new way of making more of those healthy fats using fermentation. So what the heck does fermentation mean? Um, fermentation is a word that probably most people recognize like, oh yeah, cool. Fermentation, like beer and cheese and sauerkraut and kombucha but what does it actually mean? Uh, and what fermentation in food actually means is when communities of microorganisms, which are called cultures, when they consume the sugars found naturally in different, um, in, in different plants, typically also sometimes milk. So for example, in the case of beer, um, that's a, a culture that's consuming the sugars in barley and converting those sugars into alcohol and, and the carbon dioxide that makes beer bubbly. In the case of yogurt, uh, culture, a, a yogurt culture consumes the sugars in milk and converts it into lactic acid, which gives yogurt its, its tang. There's also oil cultures, which are, you know, obviously what, what lead to cultured oil, uh, and an oil culture consumes sugars and converts those sugars into healthy fats. So instead of making alcohol or lactic acid, um, or, you know, other compounds that microorganisms produce the microorganisms, microorganisms behind cultured oil produce fat. So you can think of it similarly to what happens in a cow's stomach. You know, a, a cow, they say cows don't eat grass, microbes do. Uh, you know, a cow is basically a vehicle for a big gut full of microorganisms that ferment. And a cow walks around and eats grasses that are full of fibers and carbohydrates and sugars. And then microbes in that cow's stomach ferment those, uh, those sugars and fibers into short chain fatty acids. And, you know, ultimately that, that becomes milk and meat and hus uh, uh, hide and, and horns and all that. Um, so yeah, with, with cultured oil fermentation, it means microorganisms consuming sugars and fermenting or converting those sugars into oil. And that oil is primarily monounsaturated fat. Okay. Fascinating. So, um, basically you can have a smaller footprint. Uh, do you think this is scalable? Like what conceivably do you think, what percentage of the market do you conceivably think zero acres like could supply? Uh, it's going to take a while. Vegetable oil is a big market. It's, um, there are about 400 billion pounds of vegetable oil produced every year. Um, wow. 200. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a big number 200 over now, like 210 million metric tons. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's one of the largest commodity markets in the world. Um, uh, that said, I think, you know, we're not the first to ever think like, Hey, is there a different alternative to vegetable oils? Could we, you know, could we do this in a different way? Um, I think one of the issues is you got to start somewhere and, um, you know, the journey of a thousand miles begins with one step. 
And so culture oil is our first step. Selling it online, D2C uh, is our first step, direct to consumer. Um, but you know, ultimately, we, we want to be in, uh, you know, we're going to be on, on retail shelves. We want to be in packaged foods. We want to be at restaurants. We want people who maybe aren't listening to uh, podcasts about health and fitness uh, you know, to, to be able to benefit from healthier fats. Um, and, you know, walk into their local fast food restaurant that they were going to go to anyways. And when they order their French fries, they're at least not doing so much harm. Um, so yeah, how long it's going to take, you know, we'll see, we have big aspirations. Um, uh, we're going to be bringing the cost down over time, which I think is an important step. Um, you know, something like a palm oil, soybean oil, they're just really cheap, but yeah, cultured oil is very scalable. It's incredibly scalable. And the more scale, the, the lower the cost. And the lower the cost, the higher our probability of being able to eventually be in McDonald's. So um, every every purchase of cultured oil now is a, is a, is helping us bring down those costs to ultimately have the big impact at scale and is sort of a vote for for that future where we're not eating so much corn oil and canola and soybean oil and are instead eating something that's uh, that that's healthier and has a lower footprint. Yeah, I think, you know, in the time of our economy right now and inflation, it's hard to compete with really cheap processed food products. And, um, you know, what people really need to understand is that for every dollar that you're saving at the grocery store, you're probably spending more than tenfold long term on your health and costs of chronic disease. Diabetes is a billion dollar industry. Cancer is a billion dollar industry. Heart disease. I mean, we're talking more than billions. I mean, we're talking trillions and, and, and more in healthcare expenditure for eating cheap, processed, highly palatable foods that are full of these oils. So um, right in the literature that um, came with my oil. So replacing 5% of vegetable oils in the US with a cultured oil would save 3.1 million acres of land every year save 56.9 billion gallons of fresh water, avoid 3.6 million tons of CO2 emissions, and preserve 5.1 billion square feet of biodiverse rainforest. So even, even like you said, one, one step, one person switching out could make a big difference. So at the end of all the podcasts, we do something called the semen analysis. And of course, today I pulled a study that's very recent um, that came out of the Framingham cohort that they've been following for many, many, many years, highlighting how higher levels of omega-3s in the blood increase life expectancy by almost five years. So basically a 1% increase in omega-3s in the blood is associated with the change in your mortality risk that would be similar to quitting smoking. Um, and that's huge. So they looked at the level of omega-3 fatty acids as a predictor of mortality and once again, they were using the uh, Framingham population. This was actually published in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition, if you want to go find it. Um, the researchers found that omega-3 levels in the blood, they used basically a marker, think of it like a fingerprint on your red blood cells called your erythrocytes. And they basically found that people that had higher levels of the acids, um, which came from consuming oily fish in the diet. So things like salmon increased their life expectancy, um, by five years. And this is significant. This was 2,240 people over the age of 65. And, um, they were monitored for the four types of fatty acids, including omega threes. Um, I just think that this just highlights again for people that it's, it's about if you eat something in your diet, what are you, what are you replacing? Like we all have to eat 
And, you know, these can have really long-term consequences when, you know, and that's really honestly one of my biggest fears with really kind of this like plant-based movement is that it will keep people away from eating nutrient-dense animal foods and they will just replace those calories with highly processed oils, low-quality fats and proteins, um, and more refined grains and carbohydrates. Because like you highlighted, really the three most common foods and diets across the world is wheat, rice, and vegetable oils. Yep. Unfortunately. Yeah. I, I wish I could say, you know, we could say that the most consumed foods in the world are also those that are best for the planet and best for our health. Wouldn't that be nice? Um, unfortunately it's kind of the, the opposite of that. Uh, yeah, I mean, that, that, that studies, um, pretty opening. omega-3s are definitely good for you. Uh, and, and there's a lot of work on that subject that that's showing that, you know, that study, all data from the Framingham study, you know, it, take it with a little bit of grain of salt because it is an observational study. So it doesn't prove causation. Um, but over and over again, uh, you know, these sorts of studies, as well as randomized controlled trials point to omega-3s being healthy. Um, and yeah, let, let, let your omega-3 shine by decreasing your omega-6s. Um, you know, that that's one of the most effective ways to get more omega-3 is to decrease omega-6 because they compete. And when you're consuming other fats, saturated fats, monounsaturated fats, um, they, they don't have the same sort of enzymatic competition in your body as omega-6 fats do with omega-3. So if, if you want to live longer and get the benefits of omega-3, eat less omega-6, choose if you use cooking oils, choose cooking oils that have the lowest amounts of omega-6 um, because I mean, if you eat out at restaurants at all, if you package foods at all, you're probably already getting way too much omega-6. So when you have the option of reducing it by cooking at home, I mean, you, you should be, you should be using oils and fats that have low single digit percentage linoleic acid, not, you know, even 10, 15, 20%, like 20% plus like in canola oil and some, um, some other oils. Yeah. You know, why, why would you add all that unnecessary omega-6, um, keep, keep it as low as possible. Yeah. Yeah. It's a big deal. Can you tell people, um, we've, we've spouted off a couple names, canola oil, uh, corn oil, soybean oil. Like what are the other, you have like a top five, like most dangerous <laughs> that people like, what are, what are people looking for on labels here? Just cause I'm sure they're going to go to their pantry right now and start looking around. Yeah. Throw it all out. Um, actually we're working on a blog post of what you should do with your vegetable oil and, um, none of it has to do with eating it. So, you know, you could like, um, you could, uh, loop up like that old creaky door. You could shine some shoes. Um, you know, you could, you could turn into biodiesel, just don't eat it, whatever you do. So let's, let's start at the top, um, sunflower oil and safflower oil. Uh, those are, are two of the worst in terms of high content of omega-6 fats, like linoleic acid, um, soybean oil and corn oil are, are next. Those, those are quite high, uh, 50 to 60% plus omega-6, um, Cotton seed, uh, also at the top, um, is grapeseed oil. So this sounds healthy because like grapes are good, but, um, you know, vegetable oil, vegetables are good. Doesn't mean vegetable oil is good. You have to squeeze, not even squeeze chemically extract, um, a whole lot of grape seeds just to get a few, a few ounces of, of grapeseed oil. Never before in the history of, you know, human evolution, would we be able to eat multiple tablespoons of grapeseed oil? You know, you'd have to like eat whole, including the grape seeds, thousands of grapes. And, and even then you're not going to get the linoleic acid from it because the grapes, grape seeds just can go right through you. But yeah, grape seed oil, um, stay away. Very, very high in omega-6. Uh, and then 
cottonseed oil, peanut oil, rice bran oil. Those are all kind of like middle of the pack, you know, definitely bad, but not, not the absolute worst, like the, um, sunflower, safflower, grapeseed, corn, soybean, uh, and then avocado oil, canola oil, and olive oil are all between like 10 to 21% omega-6, um, on average, canola oil is on the higher end of that range in like the, uh, you know, low twenties and then avocado and, and olive oil are kind of, you know, run the gamut, but are kind of in the middle of that range. Um, and then, and, and then the oils that are lowest are, uh, like coconut oil is, is extremely low. Um, animal fats from ruminants are extremely low, like, like, uh, cows, uh, tallow butter, unfortunately, because we now feed vegetable oils also to, um, to pigs and chickens, uh, their fat is extremely high in omega-6, um, you know, it's often even higher than canola oil. So I can't recommend those cows have the ability to enzymatically change omega-6 fats into other fats and into other compounds in their body, which is why you can kind of feed a cow anything and you're going to get the same thing on the, on the other end. Um, and then, uh, and then cultural is, is, uh, right there with, with those fats, like, um, between two to 3% linoleic acid. So th that's kind of the, the full list. Fascinating. And they are literally unavoidable. If you guys go look at, if you just walk through the grocery store and just start flipping over products and looking at probably about 99.9% .9 of the things you feed your children is what I <laughs> found out. <laughs> I mean, every like bar, every snack, every, it was just incredible that they were adding these things, you know, I mean, I think people are starting to get savvy about looking for sugar and, you know, low sugar, sugar alternatives, but it's never just one thing. It's just this combination, this perfect storm. And until people, I think personally, until consumers can become educated, we vote with our dollar. And um, it, like I said, I really honestly think you think you're saving money on the front side. And from a, from a healthcare provider's view, you're probably spending a heck of a lot more in hospitals yeah. and doctor's offices as you age. Yeah. Um, I, I love that you bring that up. There's there's an interesting stat on soybean oil where, um, if, if you assume, and soybean oil is like two thirds of vegetable oil in the U S uh, we, you know, we're, we're eating a ton of it. It's, um, more than 10% of our calories. If you just assume 1% of our healthcare costs are because of soybean oil, the most consumed vegetable oil, which may be kind of, you know, one of the leading drivers of all chronic disease, 90% of our healthcare costs are chronic disease. Um, if you assume even just 1% of that is soybean oil. And you said, okay, we need to tax soybean oil to pay for that 1% of healthcare costs. Uh, the price of soybean oil would double. What mm -hmm. if 5% of our healthcare costs, 10% of our healthcare costs are soybean oil? It basically is unaffordable. So if you could actually account for these, what are called negative externalities, these things that happen to our society or us as individuals that nobody's paying for, um, uh, you know, our, our joke is cultural oil would, is actually the most affordable cooking oil on the market if you account for all these externalities produced by all these other oils, but yeah, someone's paying it for it eventually. Usually, unfortunately that ends up being you and, you know, in time that you're not spending with your, your kids time, you're not at work, um, healthcare costs down the line, all that. And then of course there's this huge cost to the planet as well, um, of, of consuming all these oils. Yeah. It's just, it's far reaching. Well, Jeff, tell people how they can find, uh, zero acre cultured oil. I'm going to, I'm going to try this out this weekend and I'll give you guys my review over on social media and in my stories, but tell people how they can find you and find this product. I will look out for your review. Very anxious to hear uh, what you think and what you cook up with it. 
So uh, yeah, folks can find cultured oil at zeroacre.com. Eventually I want to be able to say, you know, just go to your local restaurant and there's a high probability that the food you eat will be cooked in cultured oil, but we're not there quite yet. So yeah, right now just at zeroacre.com and and you can get, uh, and you can get your bottle of cultured oil. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Hey, thanks everybody for listening today to the fit and fabulous podcast. If you found this interesting, if you learned something, please share it, leave us your comments, leave us your questions, leave us your reviews. Uh, You help us spread these messages all over the world. Everybody have a great day.